Do you want your life to matter? Do you want to be part of something that's big, something that's, that's larger than yourself? Do you, do you want to leave a legacy that, that will survive? Uh, I, I'm sure all of us at some level want that. But what does that look like? What does it look like to have a, a legacy that, that will last? Well, I think our passage this evening in Zechariah points to an answer, or at least a large part of an answer to that very fundamental question of how can I do something that is important? How can I be part of something that's big, that's huge, that matters? Tonight we have one last sermon for the year in our series through Zechariah. After tonight, I expect that we'll actually set this series aside until um, sometime in February. Don't forget next week we have Christmas Eve. We're meeting at 5 o'clock. Five, five, everybody see that? Five, five o'clock, not six o'clock for our candlelight service. We have that, then we have New Year's Eve, of course, and then in the last part of January, I'm planning a trip to Chad, Africa, where I'll be teaching with the, the pep ministry there to a number of pastors. So we only have like a week in January, and I decided it doesn't make sense to pick up this series for that one Sunday evening that might exist for me to preach in January. I'll do something else instead, and we'll pick this series back up. When I come back in February, it will wait till then, I'm convinced. We're actually at a nice breaking part after tonight in, in the book of Zechariah. Hopefully, since we did manage to come back to Zechariah last week, at least most of us remember that we're in the middle of a series of eight visions. We're, well, middle might be the wrong, and we're at the tail end of a series of eight visions of Zechariah. All of these visions came on the night of the 15th of February in, in 519 B.C. Uh, the basic background of, of the visions here was that five months earlier, the exiles that had returned from Babylon started rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. Um, that actually existed after 15 years of not working on that project. They, they'd come back 15 years earlier from exile, began a, a initial laying the foundation and starting the project to hit some opposition and set it aside. But five months earlier, God had challenged them and they'd responded by picking up their hammers and saws and getting back to work. Now God is demonstrating his commitment to them by revealing a number of things in these visions that we've been looking at through this one long night. He's been telling Zechariah this information that Zechariah then will give to the people. So far, we've looked at seven of the eight visions from the night. Tonight, we'll look at the last one. That's why I'm calling it, partly why I'm calling it, the crowning vision. It's the last one. From the, the first seven, we, we've learned several major points, and these points are worth reviewing as we come to this last one. One, the first point that was made was that God remains aware and in control of all the events happening in the world. It, it's easy for... The Jews, especially the exiles living in the rubble of Jerusalem, think that God's lost track of what's happening. Nope, the Lord's aware. In fact, the angel of the Lord, the, the pre-incarnate Son of God, has been prominent in the early visions, and it demonstrated that he is aware of world events. Another major point, number two, is the enemies of Israel are going to suffer God's wrath because of their rejection of God and the enmity then that they've shown to Israel as a nation. Israel was God's chosen people. The angel of the Lord would see that this judgment would be enacted. Point number three was that Israel remains God's people. 
despite their sin that took them into exile, despite all the history that, uh, of, of sin, they remain God's people. And they can look forward to a day when God will once again dwell among them personally, among them as he had when he first came among them in the tabernacle in the wilderness. The nation will have prosperity then in the future because God is in their midst. Fourth major point was that this will all come about because of God's grace. Not because they deserve it. They, they clearly do not deserve it. The fact that they're picking up their hammers and saws now is not going to earn God giving them a prosperous future. No, it will come because God is gracious. None of the, the blessings will come from anything other than that. God being a gracious God. Fifthly, God himself will provide the power to accomplish all the promises that he's made through the ministry of his spirit. It will not be because the people are putting their own efforts forth. God will accomplish his work. And he'll about. And then sixthly, God is going to purify the people from all the stain of sin. They have a history of, of sin, but God will purify them from that. That point was emphasized in both the, the sixth and the seventh vision that we looked at last week. God is going to purify the people by removing sinners from their midst, but he's also going to carry sin as a principle away from them. Both the people and the tendency will be taken from them through God's action so that they will at last be a holy people unto God. All those points lead up to this last vision tonight. So as we prepare to look at the final vision in the series, let's not forget everything that Zacharias saw because that brings it into focus. Remember, everything that Zacharias saw in these visions was future from his perspective. None of the things that he saw had happened at that point. They were all prophecies for the future. From our perspective, a number of it, the, the items still remain future. Some have come about, but much of it remains future even from our perspective. The, the wonderfully depicted future of Israel that, that they are prosperous and, and sin no longer is in their midst, well, that awaits the coming of Christ, the millennial kingdom. That's when the angel will return, as we talked about this morning, as the victorious king of David, sitting on the throne of David. Still, at the moment, Zechariah has seen these visions. Rubble is serving as, as a governor, and Joshua is a man ministering as the high priest. Within the, and, and they saw that, Joshua will minister as high priest within the temple that they are building. Well, that came to happen, came to pass. So the final culmination of, of what God promises is far in the distant future, but enough of it has happened even in the life of Zechariah where they could have confidence in what God had predicted. Well, we can have even more because we've seen even more things come about, but the same principle holds true. Everything God has predicted that's yet to come will happen just as as surely as what already has. So Zechariah's final vision tonight is contained really in the first eight verses of our chapter. We'll look at all of chapter 6 this evening, but the vision itself is in the first day, and we'll call the vision the, the four chariots. Now each, I hope it shows better up there than it does back on my screen. It's a little dark. I didn't know it would show up that way. Sorry about that. Um, each of the visions have followed a pattern uh, relaying what Zechariah saw and then having what he saw explained. Um, 
Often the explanation you may remember came from this angel. We, we've called the angel the interpretive angel. Was They're functioning as, as Zechariah's guide for the evening through the visions. Sometimes the Lord himself has spoken directly to Zechariah. And in this last vision, we have all those elements. Zechariah sees something, the angel explains, and the Lord speaks. Well, in the first three verses, we have the vision itself. Now I, I lifted up my eyes again and looked. And behold, four chariots were coming forth from between the two mountains, and the mountains were bronze mountains. With the first chariot were red horses, and with the second chariot black horses, with the third chariot white horses, and with the fourth chariot strong dappled horses. Way back when we looked at the first of these eight visions back in September, um, you may not remember details, but that first vision had a number of horses in it. There's, there's a lot of parallels between this vision and that one. Um, there's some obvious correspondence. In both visions, the horses had different colors. Here, we have horses again. So the horses on the first vision, the horses on the last vision, they're kind of like bookends to this evening to, to put everything together. The, the horses serve as bookends to the eventful nights. Now, now, one of the cautions that I gave way back in September, which... Like I said, you probably long forgot, but I cautioned you at that time is, is that the scripture gives us no, de or no information as to any significance in the details. The different colors of the horses, there's nothing that, that shows if that has any meaning. And I cautioned you that we need to resist reading significant into details contained in visions whenever there's no indication in the text that the details are significant. The, the temptation is there to try and find some meaning to this. You know, sometimes it's just details that are given for color. We see that with these horses. Uh, throughout the centuries, all kinds of, of significance have been suggested to the various colors by various commentators. Any significance that they attribute to the colors, though, really comes from minds of the commentators a whole lot more than that which is revealed from the mind of God. God just said we've got horses pulling chariots and they have different colors. God didn't tell us that means anything. So any significance that commentators suggest is from their own minds, not from God's revelation. Probably all we can say with any confidence is that the colors of the horses to each of the chariots is to draw to our mind that this is a magnificent team of horses drawing this chariot. They're all carefully matched to each other. You've got black horses together, and you have white horses together, and dappled horses. They, they, they're magnificent teams drawing these chariots. It, it brings out an image of, of majesty there. Now, maybe we can draw a bit more detailed conclusion from the bronze mountains that the chariots are coming between uh, without going too far out on what I would call a speculative limb. We don't want to go so far out on speculation that we fall off the limb. From, from what we'll read in a little bit, it, it seems that the two bronze mountains, they, they serve kind of as a gateway to the divine palace, that the palace is on the, the other side of these mountains. So the chariots are being sent forth from the Lord. We, we're told that later on. So maybe we would think of the, the two bronze pillars that stood on both sides of the doorway of Solomon's temple. They, they were designed to inspire awe in, in the one who was approaching what in the temple is really the symbolic throne room of the living God. The, the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, was the place where God's throne footstool was considered. God touched earth there. He 
That was the footstool of his throne. So the, going into the temple between these pillars, you were approaching the throne room of God. Well, maybe that's the image here because we knew, know these horses are coming from God, coming from the Lord. They're coming through these mighty mountains. So replacing the image of the pillars with mountains, it, it, it imparts feelings to our mind that, that the palace of God is invulnerable. It's, it's impenetrable. The, the, it's, it's magnificent. The, these chariots are coming forth with, with their majesty of their horses drawing them, but they're coming from the most awesome, powerful place in the universe. They're, they're, they're coming from the royal stronghold of, of the Lord himself. It, it is unsurprising then that the horses would come forth, or the chariots would come forth with, with this majestic, powerful appearance being drawn by we're actually told strong horses in verse 3. That, that's a word that means horses of great strength. They are coming from the, the stronghold of the universe. So they're the mightiest of horses. So having spotted this and seen these magnificent horses drawing these, the chariots um, emerging from this gap in the mountains, Zechariah asks essentially the question that he's asked over and over and over during the night. What am I looking at? That, that's my paraphrase of his question. He, he words it a little differently, but he essentially keeps asking the angel, what am I seeing? Well, graciously, the interpreting angel standing next to him once again gives an answer. Look at verse 4. Then I spoke and said to the angel who was speaking to me, what are these, my Lord? The angel replied to me, these are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth with with one of which the black horses are going forth to the north country, and the white ones go forth after them, while the dappled ones go forth to the south country. So the angel responds. Zachariah says, what, what are they? And he, he says, well, these four chariots are, are the four spirits of heaven. Now, I admit that's rather cryptic. I'm not sure what that, these are the four spirits of heaven means. Um, apparently, they're angelic beings, so most likely the, the chariots and horses or a vision to suggest speed and, and destructive power that they have. Uh, I say that because a very similar expression is used in Jeremiah 49, verse 36, to, to refer to the destruction that, that God will bring upon Elam in that case. He, he uses the, the idea of the spirit of heaven that brings destruction. So these are powerful, destructive forces coming, angels doing God's bidding. The expression there, this is the Lord of all the earth, that, that's more clear, um, or clearer, if I want to speak properly. The, the expression points to, to God's sovereignty over all the earth. In, in Micah 4, verse 13, that expression, Lord of all the earth, it's used to describe the Messiah's millennial title, if you will. He, he's the Lord of all the earth. It designates him as the one who rules the entire planet. Well, We've had a lot of millennial illusions through these visions. So I, I think here we likely have a reference to the Messiah again. They're being sent from the Messiah. The Messiah to come is the Lord of all the earth, and these chariots are coming from him to do his bidding as the earth is prepared for his arrival. Specifically, Zechariah is told that two of the sets, the, the chariots pulled by the black horses and, and the, the chariot pulled by the white horses, both those sets of horses will go to the north country. And then he's told the dappled horses and chariot, they will go to the south country. 
apparently the red horses and their chariot, they, they do not have an immediate mission. Uh, maybe we can think of them as remaining in reserve. They, they stay within the land of Israel. And that's significant because from Israel's perspective, the north country represents the Syrians and the Babylonians. That's where, now at the time Zechariah's writing, also the Medes and Persians, that's where all the world empires that have given them recent trouble have come from the north. In chapter 2, uh, verses 6 and 7, the, the land of north during one of the earlier visions was specifically called Babylon because they come in from the north. That was the, where the main conquerors had come, the, the nation that had been possessing the, the land of Israel from the time the Syrians captured the northern kingdom all the way till this moment. They, they were the land that ruled them. So two of the chariots are heading up to that mighty land. The south country represents Egypt. That's the other direction that throughout Israel's history foes have come from and invaded. So in other words, two chariots have gone in the direction of Israel's historically stronger enemy, one chariot in the direction of Israel's historical enemy. Really, Israel never worries about things on the east and the west because on the west you had the Mediterranean Sea and on, on the east you had deserts. So trouble didn't come from those directions. So without any further information, we, we can at least conclude that God is shoring up Israel's security. He's providing divine protection uh, between the nation and its enemies. He might be doing even more than that. And more information is provided. As soon as the angel finished speaking, the Lord himself adds an explanation. Verse 7. When the strong ones went out, they were eager to go to patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried out to me and spoke to me, saying, See, those who are going to the land of north have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. It's unclear whether the first part of verse 7 really is spoken by the angel or the Lord. When it says, when the strong ones went out, they were eager to go patrol the earth. That could still be the angel speaking, and our verse is divided poorly. Or it could be the Lord began speaking. Because the Lord does begin speaking for sure when we get to, and he said. You know, I'll let you envision the first part however you wish. Um, what we're told is that, angel, or that the horses, they were eager to undertake the mission. The angels are being sent out to do their job, and they're, they're quick to do it, patrolling the earth. As I said, in the middle of the verse, clearly it's the Lord who begins speaking, even though the Lord is simply introduced as he. The, the angel of the Lord, remember I mentioned that, the pre-incarnate Christ, he was explicitly with Zechariah in the first vision, again in the fourth vision. In other visions, from time to time, we're told the Lord spoke. So in every case, it's possible that the angel of the Lord has been standing there all along throughout the vision, that, that the pre-incarnate Christ has been there letting Zechariah and the interpreting angel talk while he's just standing kind of off to the, the side overseeing everything. In that case, introducing him simply with the word he is unsurprising. He has been there all along. At, at any rate, the, the Lord speaks now, and, and he fills us in on the mission that was given to these, the way I think of it, maybe the angelic chariot drivers. We're told about the horses, we're told about the chariots, we're not told about the, the one driving the chariot, but that's where the power lies. They're being sent by the Lord in judgment. That's their purpose. They're, they are to bring divine wrath upon the peoples of the earth. 
specifically upon the, the enemies of Israel in the north. They are to bring judgment upon them until the Lord is appeased. Apparently they will appease the Lord's wrath by, by carrying out his judgment. Think about it. That this judgment is still future, even from our perspective. A couple thousand years after Zechariah. Yeah, Babylon was partially judged by the Medes and the Persians. And Babylon, you know, was conquered by the Medes and Persians. And then Medes and Persians were partially judged uh, later. But, but the promise that Zechariah is seeing here, the promise contained in this vision, indicates that, that all of that was just partial because Babylon itself was only partially judged by the Medes and Persians, and that was history by the time Zechariah received this prophecy. So if, if the Medes and Persians were the judgment upon Babylon, then Zechariah wouldn't receive a prophecy that Babylon would be judged. No, there's more judgment required, is my point. God is not yet appeased. As we've been reminded several times, the, the fact that these promises remain future do not in any way cast doubt as to whether they will occur or not. God has promised that the enemies of Israel will be judged fully for their treatment of Israel. And God has demonstrated with some near-term promises that are now historical, as I said from our perspective, that he will do what he has promised. So this promise of this appeasement of his wrath still remains future. It's a major promise. And that should teach us, even as we think about that, that sometimes there's a lot of time that passes between when God says he's going to do something and when he does it. But that does not mean we should start to wonder whether God will do what he has said or not. His promises toward us, that we've made, they're just as secure as the promise he gave here to Zechariah. Every promise God makes is secure. All of his promises to deal with the injustices of life, we, we should never doubt that the God will deal with it. God will deal with every injustice in the world. He will deal with every person in righteousness, as we talked about this morning. We, we need not despair as we wait, wondering if God has forgotten or not. He will do it. Well, let's move on, because the Lord is not finished speaking. I'll call the rest of his revelation the royal crown. That's the name I'm going to give it, the royal crown. Uh, beginning in, in verse 9, really the Lord leaves behind the visions that he's been shown Zechariah, and he, and he just speaks directly to him. Zechariah doesn't introduce a new set of revelations until the next chapter. That's why I said this chapter brings this long night to a close. The, the next thing in, in the book of Zechariah begins in chapter 7, but... Beginning at verse 9, we, we step away from visions, and the Lord just talks directly to Zechariah. He, he gives him a prophetic word. And apparently, these are the final words then that the Lord leaves with Zechariah on that night of February 15th, 519 B.C. A final instruction. They're, they're not visions, they're, they're rather, as I just said, these beginning in verse 9, are the Lord's instructions. Look at verse 9. The word of the Lord came to me, saying... That, that sounds like an introduction we hear over and over in prophecy when God speaks to his prophets. The, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Take an offering from the exiles, from Heldai, Tob Tobijah, 
in Jediah. And you go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they have arrived from Babylon. Now it's hard to fully understand what's going on here because the, the names I just read, um, none of those people are mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. They, they just pop in here. Um, my best guess, and that's what it is, so take it as that. My best guess is what's going on here is that three men have arrived recently in Jerusalem from the, the exiles. Remember, several exiles came back from Babylon 15 years prior to start rebuilding Jerusalem, but was by no means nearly all of the Israelites that were taken exile and had lived there for 70, 70 years. There, there was many Israelites settled in the Babylonian Empire by that time. So my best guess is that three men have come now from Babylon, maybe even the previous day, the way it's worded here, that they've just arrived, and they found lodging with a man by the name of Josiah, who is living there in Jerusalem, one of the returnees. They arrived, these three men, they arrived with some silver and gold, likely some gifts that they had taken a collection from the exiles that were still in Babylon. They had taken up a collection to, to probably assist in constructing the temple. They would brought these gifts to Jerusalem, just arrived. And now, the Lord tells Zechariah, rather than letting them, or allowing them to give their gifts to the construction of the temple, Zechariah is to go and, and receive those gifts. He and put those gifts to a different use than, than rebuilding the temple. Zechariah take the, the silver and gold and use it instead for a different purpose. And there's an urgency here to the instructions. Zechariah is to do it the same day. In other words, Basically, when morning comes, it would be the way to think of it. Zechariah, you've had this long night of visions, but this same day, you need to go and, and, and receive from these men the silver and gold that they brought and use it to fashion a crown for Josiah, the high priest, or Joshua, rather, the high priest. Now, the crown that he is to construct is significant. Hebrew has different words for different types of crowns. We, maybe because we don't have a king anymore, we think of crown. We don't really have a whole lot of words for it. Um, but the high priest traditionally wore a, a crown of sorts. More what we would think, maybe we do have multiple words, because probably more what we'd think of as a turban. It, it's, it was a cloth crown on his head. The word that's used here is not that word. So Joshua was a high priest, but this crown that is to be made for him is not the crown that a high priest would wear. The word that's used here is the word for a royal crown. In fact, typically indicates a very ornate crown, one that has many diadems. Think of it, a kingly crown when, when you create an image in your mind, a very kingly looking crown. In this case, a crown that will have both silver and gold mixed into it. Surprisingly, Zechariah is told to take this crown that he makes, this royal crown, this kingly crown, and place it on Joshua's head, the, the high priest. A, a kingly crown, of, from our perspective, would be more appropriate on the head of, of Zerubbabel, if anyone at that time. Zerubbabel was the civil governor. He was the, the one who oversaw the state affairs. But the symbolic act is to be different. The symbolic act is not to look like the returnees are trying to appoint their own king to, to throw off the foreign rule of the Medes and Persians. In fact, 15 years ago, 
and even at the time they're working now, the opponents to the rebuilding project of the temple, the accusation they kept sending back to, to Babylon was that these Jewish returnees, they're trying to set up their own kingdom again. They're trying to rebel. So this crown of not go on Zerubbabel's head, that might look like rebellion. No, Zechariah is to give actions that are clearly symbolic of something else. And he's to do that by putting the crown on the head of the high priest. Moving on to the next two verses, we, we see not only is Zechariah told to do something that, that clearly has symbolic significance, he's also given a message that he's supposed to, to convey along with his action as he puts the crown on the head of Joshua. He's to give a message about the Lord's branch. Verse 12, Then say to him, that would be to Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. So this message that the Lord gives Zechariah to convey as he puts the crown upon Joshua's head, it, it explains the symbolism of, of what's happening. The, the picture of sitting a, setting a royal crown on the head of the high priest is meant to show that the royal and the priestly functions are going to be united in, in one person, and that person's name is Branch. Now, earlier in chapter 3, verse 8, to be precise, that would be back in the fourth vision of this night. So, you know, from Zechariah's perspective, just, I don't know, your guess is because mine an hour or two earlier, you know, during the night. During that vision, Branch was introduced, this person. That, that name was introduced as a title for the Messiah. So it's clearly being, being conveyed here that, that the Messiah will be the man where these two offices unite. Another significant point in these two verses, in fact, it's repeated twice in, in the verses, he will build the temple of the Lord. In fact, in verse 13, the he is extremely emphatic in, in the Hebrew. The branch will have the honor of the priest, but he will rule from a throne. He will conduct a council of peace by uniting the offices together. So this picture of placing the crown on, on Joshua's head is meant to show that the Messiah will be both priest and king. He will hold those two offices there now at the moment of Zechariah held by Joshua and Zerubbabel, two different people. This one will hold both those offices. Now, because we live on the other side of the incarnation, we're on the other side of the cross, this revelation may not seem that amazing to us. You may be sitting here, yeah, I know all this. We know that Jesus serves as both high priest and, and king. The author of Hebrew makes that crystal clear. We've heard it over and over again. But put yourself back in Zechariah's day. Uh, aside from Psalm 10, which, or Psalm 110 rather, um, aside from that psalm that indicates there'll be a ruler in Zion who will be a priest according to the, Mel the order of Melchizedek, that's the verse that Hebrews quotes, Psalm 110, there, there's no other Old Testament passage that comes close like this one does to uniting the royal and priestly offices together. We can see that Psalm, one, or Psalm 110, I keep saying it wrong, we can see that that psalm unites them, 
But let's remember Psalm 110 is poetry. This is what the psalm says. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Remember Christ used that psalm to challenge the priests, asking them, what does it mean? And, and the priests at the time of Christ couldn't answer Jesus what that psalm meant. Psalm 110 is not that clear for people who had lived their entire existence with these two offices being separate. From the very beginning of the nation, there was a priest, and then centuries later, you had the kingship established. They were never united. This is a major revelation that Zechariah is receiving, that, that these two things that were separated for centuries are going to be united in one man. Now let's look at the final two verses of the Lord's message. What well, I'm calling the Lord's guarantee. Now the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord to Helam, Tobiah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. The, the crown that um, Zechariah is to make here, that the crown that he's to set upon uh, Joshua's head and symbolically explain all of this, that crown, that physical crown, is to make its way into the temple that the people were currently building. It's not for Joshua to wear it on an ongoing basis. It's to have a place in the temple. And there in the temple, it will serve as a memorial to the exiles. The, it will serve as a more memorial to the exiles that donated the gold and silver that were cast in it, reminding people that the exiles are part of the nation. Josiah, who housed the visiting delegation, he's to re be remembered for, for honoring them in that way. Although for some reason his name is, is changed here to Hen in verse 14. I don't know why, but Hen in Hebrew means gracious one. So maybe the name was used to honor, Josh, or honor Josiah for his hospitality. He was the gracious one who housed these people at a time when, when housing people were a challenge because the city's in rubble. I don't know why his name's changed. Anyway, this crown is, is to be in the temple and it's to be an ongoing memorial. It, it is to show the exile's commitment to the rebuilding. And simultaneously, though, beyond that memorial, it, it will work to remind the people of a much larger purpose. The crown will serve as an ongoing reminder that the Lord has guaranteed there is a significant future coming for the nation of Israel. A future with a kingdom in which he himself will dwell through his branch. Now remember, they don't understand at this point that the branch is the son of God, but they understand that he has divine capability and he will dwell with them he will rule over the redeemed people. God's presence will be among them. In fact, the reference to those who are far off in verse 15, that, that goes beyond exile. That, that's language that is used often to refer to nations. That the temple of the Lord, Yahweh's temple here in, in verses 12 through 15, that's not a temple, the temple that they're currently building. It's not that. It's one that the Messiah will build. He will build this temple. This Messiah, this branch that will come, he will build this. And those who are far off, that points to Gentiles, they will join the Jews in the kingdom of God that's ruled by the branch. 
Now, the future promise here, it far exceeds anything the people of Zechariah's day were anticipating. They just hoped they could build the temple and that God would make his presence among them. And he's shown them that there's something far beyond anything you've ever experienced as a nation. And what they receive here is guaranteed that God, from God that the Messiah will reign as king and high priest over a kingdom of Jews and Gentiles combined. Look at the final phrase in the chapter. It will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. That statement there is written as a conditional statement. But don't forget the visions that we've just been going through. God had promised that his spirit would accomplish his promises. He promised in the, the last two visions that he will purify the nation, removing sinners and sin. God's already told Zechariah that the people will ultimately obey him. His grace will ensure it through the power of his spirit as he removes sin from among them. So this final statement, even though it's written as a guarantee, or as a conditional statement, it's as much of a guarantee as of the crown that will be visible sitting in the temple. God will enable the people to do what he has told them to do so that his Messiah can reign as God has promised he will reign. Zechariah is to go get the, the materials for this crown and make it urgently so that this, this message has a visible reminder of what's coming in the far distant future. The people have a long ways to go to finish the temple project they've undertaken. They're not much beyond the foundation at this point. Certainly, they, they'll encounter many other opportunities for discouragement along the way. But the Lord has graciously given Zechariah these visions, culminating in this message regarding the Messiah to, to keep them at it, to let them know that their work will not be in vain. It is moving them toward a future that far exceeds their imagination. As we wrap up this evening, I want to think about how the message of the Lord gave, the, the message that the Lord gave these people through Zechariah, how, how does this apply to us? Now we live a long time after the people of Zechariah. I, I think we all agree with that, right? We live a long time after these people who were working on the temple. For that matter, the, the temple that they were building at that time, it's come and gone. It's ancient history from our perspective. All the work they did, it's gone. In fact, as we enter the Christmas season, we're reminded that the initial coming of our Messiah is 2,000 years ago. A lot of time, a lot of time has passed. Where do our humble efforts fit into God's grand plan? Does anything we do in 2023, or for that matter, we can look ahead, anything we might do in 2024, does anything we do really matter? I stated at the outset that we all want to participate in, in grand things. We want to know that what we are doing matters. Now, I'm sure the people from Zechariah's day wanted the same. It's a human desire. God has showed them that what they are doing matters. Their temple was built. Their temple was destroyed. Time has gone along the way. But their temple pointed to the Messiah. Their temple prepared the way for the Messiah. It helped make people long for the Messiah. It was important. 
It was part of God's plan. It was important because of the Messiah. I would suggest that lesson lies at the heart of how it applies to us as well. Because we are in a very similar situation. What we do for God is important, but it is important because of the Messiah. Our efforts are important because the Lord ensures that our current service supports his grand plan. That is the lesson. The Lord ensures that our current service supports his grand plan. On the surface, our, our efforts may appear small and inconsequential. We, we may look at the things we're doing, our, our service, we may look at it as, I would think some of the, the, the exiles, the returnees, rather, the, looked at it. They had a hammer pounding a nail on the backside of the temple's foundation, knowing that it's going to be covered by other material. How can that nail possibly matter at all? After all, they could probably imagine even if they're pounding it, well, the previous temple was destroyed, this temple somewhere will be destroyed too. Oftentimes I think we su suspect that what we're doing is just as inconsequential, that, that our nail is going to be long gone before the Messiah returns. Whatever we're doing now is just a small tail, nail on the backside of the foundation of a temple that will be covered up and then later blown away. To our eyes, our nail looks totally unimportant. And yet, the promises that come through God, what he told Zechariah here, is that those small efforts, that little tiny nail is important when it's service for God. So if our efforts are pointing to the Messiah, then our efforts matter. God's grand plan is about the Messiah. Anything we're doing that points to the Messiah is part of that grand plan and is part of the biggest plan of the universe. The Lord ensures that our current service supports his grand plan. I guess the real question for us boils down to whether or not our efforts are, are directed towards serving the Lord. Are we spending time that God has given us serving the Lord? What are we doing with our time? How are we expending it? If we're serving him with our time, then we are in, involved and in participating in the, in the grandest thing that's available. If not, we really are wasting our lives because we're wasting our time if we're spending the time God has given us for something other than serving him. This realization struck home for me when I was sitting next to Sean Alexander and I was in a van that was taking me to an airport in Brazil so I could fly back to the U.S. I'd spent a couple weeks with Mike and Don at that time. You guys had just driven in Saracaba, as I recall. And I sat in the van and I wondered, why am I heading back to the United States? I, I knew I was going back to spend the, the days of my life helping a company earn money. Any money I might help that company make in the U.S., was rather meaningless to me. Yeah, they gave me a small part of that money, but most of it went, I don't know where it went. It went somewhere else. It wasn't coming to me. I knew that much. Furthermore, it was ultimately meaningless because the, the company someday I knew would no longer exist. In fact, the company I work for does not exist any longer. I, I, I had to wonder if I was wasting my life, or at least large portions of it, because very little of my life was being spent serving the Lord. 
Now, I certainly do not believe that every person should go into full-time vocational ministry. I don't believe that at all. But I do believe that every believer should strive to be in full-time ministry wherever God has placed you vocationally. That's how we are to spend our lives. You are not working in companies to earn money. You're working in companies to share Christ with the people you encounter, to point to the Messiah, which is God's plan. This is how your life, that little nail you pound, fits into the grand plan of God. You pound the nails that you're given in the place where they are to point to the Messiah. Then the Lord ensures that your current service points to his grand plan. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it's been to work our way through these visions here that you've given to your prophet so many years ago. The encouragement that you gave him, the, the stupendous revelation of the future that you laid out. And Father, we see that much like the people working in his day, we too are, are working in in a point in time where your plan is still unfolding itself. But Father, you have shown us through this revelation that your plan is about your Son, the Messiah. So Father, may we expend our lives serving in the place you've placed us in history, working about that plan, being used by you to point people to the Messiah who will come again. Father, we live with greater revelation because as we hit this time of year, we remind ourselves over and over that he has come once and he gave his life so that salvation is available. Father, as we were reminded this morning, he is coming again. So may we expand our lives pointing to the one who is coming, sharing with how people can bow before him now so that they can rejoice when he comes. Father, use us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.